Good morning, everyone. If you please open your Bibles or turn on your smartphones. We will be reading Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 1, reading through verse 22. If you do not have a Bible this morning, please feel free to use a pew Bible. Uh, you can find this passage on page 640. Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 21, reading through verse 22. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles." And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names in your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Synchria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. Let's pray. Father, we come. We come praising you for who you are, a God who is holy. Father, but a God who is near. You are not far off. And I praise you and I thank you for that. Lord, help us this morning to humble ourselves. Father, I ask that you speak to each one here. Open our eyes, open our hearts to the message this morning. Be with Pastor Bruce, Lord. 
use him in a powerful way. Lord, I think of the World Outreach Celebration. Lord, I pray for travel protection as the missionaries will be traveling in. Lord, I pray for the festivities, but I pray that our focus this upcoming week will be on you and you alone and that you will be praised and you will be glorified. May your will be done. In your son's name I pray, amen. Man, thank you, Terry. Thank you, instrumentalist. Awesome job. Appreciate you leading us in worship, not only with this song, but as we begin our worship service each and every Sunday. I always appreciate our praise team leading us in directing our thoughts in our hearts to acknowledge our Creator and God and what his, He has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. This morning, what I want us to do is to use these verses here in Acts 18 to focus on our world outreach missionaries that Chris just introduced to you a few minutes ago. Our global guests who will be with us uh, starting this week, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday, and then uh, culminating on next, next Sunday. And here's what you're going to discover when you attend the World Outreach Celebration. You're going to discover that missionaries are people too. Missionaries are people who have simply answered God's call to go beyond borders with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in those borders, in the case of our missionaries, span from England to the Netherlands to Mongolia. And yes, these missionaries make great sacrifices. They have made great sacrifices to bridge the gap beyond borders. Sacrifices that, that you would never fully understand until you become a missionary and walk in their shoes. And sometimes what happens is we wrongly assume or wrongly imagine missionaries don't have any problems. They don't have any struggles in life. And that they're somehow these, quote, super saints who never deal with the same stuff and same struggles that we deal with as Christ followers who are bridging the gap here in Kansas City. But Luke shows us here, through the story of Paul, here in his second missionary journey, that missionaries are people too. In fact, notice this in your notes coming up on the screen. Missionaries are often in need of rejuvenation because of this. Because they are missionaries, are people too, they are often in need of rejuvenation while bridging the gap beyond borders. Going to the story of the Apostle Paul here in Acts 18, he is in the middle of his second missionary journey. And by Acts 18, Paul has already been through a, a long, long list of trials and troubles. And the trials in Corinth will only add to his list of difficulties, his list of afflictions and hardships. And so it's no wonder that Paul is discouraged in his spirit and needs to be rejuvenated. He needs to be refreshed, which is exactly what the Lord does for him here in this passage. Not too long ago, I saw a meme that I'm sure our world outreach missionaries can relate to. It should be coming up on the screen. And it's a photo of a man, as you can see, in his 80s with this big smile on his face. And he's given the thumbs up sign. And the caption reads, Who said being a missionary is stressful? Hey, I'm 35 and feel great. Anyone who knows anything about missions 
somewhat laughs at this because the joke highlights something that's very true. Being a missionary is difficult. It's stressful. And therefore, missionaries need to be rejuvenated. And so what I want us to do is kind of unpack that thought here out of what the Scriptures say in Acts 18. Rejuvenation for God's servants. Notice, number one, missionaries go through times of discouragement. They go through times of discouragement. In fact, we all do. We all go through seasons of discouragement, and including our World Outreach Celebration missionaries. In fact, no one escapes discouragement in life. Not too long ago, the Hayden Planetarium in New York City issued an invitation to all those interested in applying to be part of the crew of the first journey to another planet. Get this, 18,000 people applied to be part of the crew that goes to another planet. They gave the application to a panel of psychologists who examined them and came to the conclusion that in the vast majority of cases, those who applied did so because they were discouraged with their lives here on earth and hoped they could find a new life somewhere else. Sometimes we pretend that being a follower of Christ keeps us from discouragement, and that's simply not true. Sometimes we even assume that being a missionary excludes you from discouragement. But that's not true as well. All throughout history, we find that God's servants are not immune to discouragement. You go to the Old Testament, and we find that Elijah got so discouraged, he asked God to take his own life. In one of his psalms, David was so discouraged, he asked God, why have you forgotten me? In burden with the weight of a rebellious, grumbling people, Moses cried out to the Lord in Numbers 11, verse 11. He says, why have you brought such trouble on your servant, God? Charles Spurgeon battled with bouts of depression. He wrote, and I quote, I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. The Apostle Paul also found himself, in the words of Spurgeon, the wretchedness of discouragement. When Luke writes here in verse 1, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. Now, I admit, you would never know from this verse alone that Paul was discouraged. There's really no indication of that in verse 1, in the opening of this chapter here. That fact doesn't jump off the page in the first verse. But we know that it's true from what Paul himself writes. In fact, in Paul's own testimony, he tells us how he felt as he arrived in the city of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. Listen to his words. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Now, I don't, know, I don't know about you and what your thoughts are of Paul's words there, but that sounds like a man who's been through the ringer. But it also makes you wonder what could have possibly weakened and intimidated Paul to the point that he is now discouraged, that he would later write to these believers in Corinth later on, and says, listen, when I came to you, I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. 
Well, there are a variety of reasons missionaries go through times of discouragement, but Luke shows us here in Acts 18 at least four reasons that missionaries get discouraged. And I want you to see these reasons. I want you to see them in Paul's life because these are also the same reasons that our world outreach missionaries get discouraged. And I want us to have that understanding in knowing that missionaries are people too. Notice the first reason. Missionaries endure personal difficulties. Think about what has happened to Paul so far in every city he has gone to on this second missionary journey into Europe. He begins in the city of Philippi in Macedonia. What happened there? He was unjustly beaten with rods and thrown into prison. In fact, he was tortured, scourged 39 times. He leaves Philippi. He goes to Thessalonica. And God is at work there as people are coming to Christ. And then the city is set in a riot and a mob is incited against Paul. And so Paul flees in the night to save his life. And he flees from Thessalonica and he goes to Berea. And things are going well there again. And people are coming to Christ again. But then the Jewish leaders from Thessalonica that oppose Paul, oppose the gospel of Christ, they track Paul down in Berea and they set that city in a riot. And so now Paul has to flee again by night for his life. He sails on a ship to Athens. He's comes to the city, he's provoked by a city full of idols, and so he begins to proclaim Christ and his resurrection in the synagogue and in the marketplace. Some people believed, but most people were indifferent to the gospel that Paul proclaimed to them. In fact, many of the people called him a babbler, and they mocked Paul, they ridiculed him. And so Paul left Athens, and he travels from Athens and now he comes to the city of Corinth. And I believe something in Paul's stomach begins to churn and fear begins to grip his heart as he arrives in this city. We tend to think this is the Apostle Paul. How? He was a man of faith. How can this be? He never wavered. He knew going beyond borders would be tough. But I think in his weakness and fear, Paul is now questioning. He's beginning to wonder. Will there be another painful beating? Will there be another night in prison? Another riot? Another mob of angry killers? Will there be another meager response to the gospel? And I think all these questions are throwing, going through his mind, and it plays a part in what he's feeling and what he's going through. And to make matters worse, when Paul got to Corinth, notice he was all alone. All alone. Earlier on this journey, he enjoyed the companionship of his missions team, which was Luke, Silas, and a young disciple named Timothy. But Luke had been left in Philippi. Silas and Timothy had been, stayed back in Berea. And it was the right thing for these men to do. The new believers in those cities needed teaching. They needed discipling. They needed to be strengthened and brought up in the things of God in their new faith. But Paul paid a price for it. It's hard to do ministry alone, especially when times are tough. Also consider just the extent of Paul's travel log on this second missionary journey. One author says, between the years 49 and 52 AD, Paul traveled approximately 
2,000 miles by foot and about 1,000 miles by ship. That means Paul walked the equivalent of the distance between, get this, Boston, Massachusetts and Denver, Colorado. Just to bridge the gap with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul arrives in Corinth in a mood of great dejection, having endured one difficulty after another. Kent Hughes, pastor and author, has written commentaries. He writes, Paul must have felt like a football that had, been taken the, that had taken the right bounces and refused to be fumbled. And yet every time his team scored, he was spiked to the turf and then kicked back down the field again. Man, we can relate to that a little bit. The first reason Paul was discouraged, the first reason our missionaries that you are going to meet here Wednesday night often get discouraged is this right here. They endure personal difficulties. But there's another reason that comes out of this passage here, and that is missionaries encounter spiritual darkness. And so what did Paul encounter when he arrived in the city of Corinth? Well, you may remember two weeks ago in Athens, Paul encountered a city filled with what? Idols. Idolatry. But here in Corinth, Paul encounters a city filled with immorality. And thanks to its location as a port city, Corinth was the largest and most cosmopolitan city in all of Greece. It boasted a population of over 200,000. And since Julius Caesar rebuilt Corinth after the Romans destroyed it, this is interesting, no building was more than 100 years old when Paul arrived in the city. Politically, Corinth was a Roman colony. It was the capital of Achaia. But morally, Corinth was the original sin city. It was the place where sexual immorality was running rampant. In fact, towering 1,500 feet above the city was the Temple of Aphrodite, which was the goddess of love. Each night, the temple's prostitutes, and some people estimate around a thousand of them, would descend into the city to practice their trade in search of worshipers. In fact, by the time Paul arrives in this incredibly wicked city, the Greek word for Corinthian had already become a nickname for immorality across the Roman Empire. Listen, it was a spiritually dark place to do ministry. Not unlike some of the cities in which our own missionaries cross borders to go into to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a third reason why missionaries often get discouraged, and that is they experience financial stress. Just to add one more thing to the list of reasons why Paul was discouraged, you could say he was broke. When Paul started out on his journey, more than likely he had been given money from his sending church in Antioch. And perhaps along the way, even other churches supported him financially as well. But when Paul arrived here in the city of Corinth, he had run out of money and had to find work. Being trained as a tent maker, Luke tells us in verses 2 and 3 that Paul found a Jewish tent maker named Aquila and his wife Priscilla, and he stayed with them, and he began to work with them to make ends meet. This was the first time in his missionary journeys that he had to work as a tent maker to support himself along with his ministry. Now, 
Paul didn't complain about it. You go to the book of Corinthians, and he talks about this. He did this in part because he didn't want to be a burden to anyone, but part of it was also by necessity. He had to in order to survive. And if you've ever experienced a season of financial stress where you're on the downside of that, then you know how discouraging that can be. Paul was broke, and now he's doing double duty. He's working as a tent maker while he's also trying to proclaim the gospel in the city of Corinth. Which leads us then to another reason why Paul and often our missionaries are discouraged. They encounter gospel opposition. When Paul wasn't making tents during the week, he was proclaiming Jesus Christ on the Sabbath in the synagogue. In fact, Luke tells us in verse 4 that Paul was trying to persuade both the Jews and the Greeks that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, the Messiah, the, the one who died on the cross for our sins and resurrected three days later. But according to verse 6, it wasn't too long before the Jews opposed Paul. They not only opposed him personally, but they opposed his message, the gospel message. And when they did, I find this interesting, Paul shifted his focus from the Jews to who? To the Gentiles. In fact, he even, uh, it says, Luke tells us that he even shook out his garments, which was just kind of this sign of protest against their hard-heartedness. Now, you take all these reasons here, and you stack them on one on top of the other. And you can understand why Paul wrote to the Corinthian church years later and said, I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Who could blame him? Paul had every reason to feel weak, fearful, and discouraged. I mean, just think about it. The constant opposition, the spiritual darkness, the loneliness, the physical weariness, and the lack of funds were all weighing down on the Apostle Paul. And our world outreach missionaries, let me tell you, they are no different. They go through times of discouragement for the same reasons Paul did. Now, the beauty of our world outreach celebration that we have each and every year is that oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes, a lot of our missionaries will open up their heart and share this with us. Sometimes in their presentations, sometimes in the nightly challenges, sometimes just in one-on-one -on -one conversations or with a small group of you, but a lot of times even on our Saturday morning breakfast time with the guys and the ladies with the the women's luncheon, our missionaries will open up and they will share what I will call the good, the bad, and the ugly, the highs and the lows of what it is to be a missionary beyond borders. And you kind of get an inside look into their lives and what they go through, what they have been through. And it's a beautiful thing to hear some of that. And you walk away understanding a little bit more, you know what, they're just people too. But they're people who have responded to God's call to go beyond borders. And they get discouraged just like I get discouraged. And that's why missionaries need encouragement. It reminds you of that. 
because they get discouraged and they go through times of discouragement, then missionaries need encouragement to keep serving, to keep going, to keep pressing on. The question is, how do missionaries survive this discouragement? How do they get to the other side of it? Well, our God is a God of encouragement, amen? Aren't you thankful for that? And He loves to encourage His weary servants with fresh strength. Listen, Paul may have entered Corinth discouraged, but the God of all comfort, who comforts the depressed, did not leave Paul in his downtrodden condition. God encouraged his struggling servant with his faithfulness and with his assurance. And I want us to break that down and look at it. I want us to see God's faithfulness to Paul, and I also then want us to see God's assurance for Paul, because it applies to our missionaries as well. Look at this, God's faithfulness to Paul. First of all, God provided devoted partners for him. Going back to Aquila and Priscilla. Listen, they were more than just tent makers in the city of Corinth. They were devoted partners in the ministry with Paul. And like Paul, they were new to the city of Corinth. They had been forced out of Rome, kicked out as Jews, and so now they're somewhat like refugees in this Corinth. And they're having to reestablish themselves, reestablish the, their business. And we don't know, Luke doesn't tell us, how Paul met Aquila and Priscilla. Maybe, maybe Paul answered their one they're one ad, I don't know. Hey, tent makers are needed here. Regardless of how they met, God providentially brought this dear couple into Paul's life when he needed it most. Aquila and Priscilla will become some of Paul's dearest friends and devoted partners in the ministry. We know they later went with Paul to Ephesus where they hosted a church in their home. Eventually, they returned back to Rome where they again hosted a church in their home. And Paul says that they risked their lives for his sake. And in one of the last verses that Paul wrote before he was executed, he sent greetings to this couple who had become his lifelong friends. How encouraging it must have been for Paul to meet this couple. Believers in Jesus Christ most believed by, our, by the time they got to Corinth. So brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, and God pairs them up together. Paul enters the city alone, but he brings them, provides them partners in ministry. Another couple to come alongside of him and to boost his spirits. It's beautiful. The faithfulness of God. But second of all, notice what God does. God not only provided partners, but he sent Paul financial support. God encouraged Paul through the arrival of Silas and Timothy in Corinth. And I'm sure Paul was overjoyed to see his mission team rejoin him again, right? You would be too. We all would. But according to verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived, Paul was able now, get this, to devote himself completely to the Word of God. In other words, studying it and proclaiming it. Previously, Paul was doing what though? He was having to support himself. He was having to make tents and preach as he could. But with the arrival of his missions team, he's now giving full attention to God's Word. I like how the NLT translates verse 5. It says this, And after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul spent all his time preaching the word of God. 
So what changed? What, how was Paul able to set aside working as a tent maker so that he could devote all his time to studying the Word of God and preaching the Word of God? What allowed that to happen? Well, because Silas and Timothy brought with them generous love offerings from the Macedonian believers in the city of Philippi who financially supported Paul. That was the difference. In fact, it's interesting. Paul himself writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9, listen to his words. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, that is, his missions team, Paul, and, I mean uh, Silas and, and Timothy, when they came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. What an encouragement this must have been to Paul. Paul wrote, wrote a thank you note to these same believers in Philippians 4. He says in verses 4, 15 and 16, And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. So this wasn't the first time that they supplied financial need for Paul. You ever get a check in the mail? You ever get a, some cash in a card and it was totally unexpected? You ever get a gift card that just surprised you, took you back? I mean, how encouraging is that? It just kind of lifts your spirit to know that your needs, financial needs, have been met. And that's encouraging. That lifts your spirits. And that's what Paul felt here. But God was faithful in another area as well. Look what he does, number three. God blessed with gospel fruit. When Paul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, the people opposed him and opposed the gospel. So where does Paul go after being run out of the synagogue? I think this is funny. He goes next door. And according to verse 7, a man named Justice, who worshipped God, opened his home to Paul and the new church there in Corinth. Verse 8 says, Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. Now you can just imagine with me for a moment that perhaps Crispus was one of those who opposed Paul and opposed the gospel earlier in verse 6. But now, now he has come to faith. Now he believes and he becomes part of the church next door to the synagogue. And don't miss what Luke writes in the last part of verse 8. Look at it with me. And it says, many of the Corinthians hearing, hearing what? What did they hear? They heard the gospel, hearing, then believed, and were baptized. Now that is an astonishing statement there. This is what every missionary prays for. It's what every missionary longs for when they go beyond borders. It's what our missionaries long to see happen in England, in the Netherlands, in Mongolia, in, in Latin America, wherever they are across the world. This is their heart's desire. This is their passion. This is what they pray for and long for. But by, folks, by the way, this is what we long for here at LifeBridge. We long to see people hear the Word of God and to believe and to be baptized. This is what we pray for. Hopefully that's what you pray for. And this is what we long for. This is what we give our lives to. 
And what kind of people were these new believers in Corinth? Oh, don't miss this either. The kind of people these were. Remember, this was one of the most immoral cities in the Roman Empire. And so get this. We don't have to guess what kind of people came to Christ. We don't have to guess the power of the gospel here. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, where he lists the kind of people that these people were involved in. He says he lists the sexually immoral, he lists idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, slanders, and swindlers. And then Paul does this. He makes this warning that these people, who where these sins characterize their lives, he warns and he says, listen, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says in verse 11, in the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 6, and that is what some of you were, which is one of the greatest statements in all of God's Word. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Folks, that's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where sin abounded, and believe me, it abounded plentiful in the city of Corinth. But where sin abounded, God's grace superabounded. And if the gospel is powerful enough to save these Corinthians, who we can identify with in our own sinfulness, then the gospel is powerful enough to save anyone. And as we already learned, powerful enough to save anyone regardless of what? Gender, race, or status. And we could add to that list sins. doesn't matter what your sins were. doesn't matter what your past was, what your background is. God's gospel is powerful enough to save you. When you humble yourself, repent of your sin, and come to Jesus Christ in faith. Is that not awesome? Is that not what you have experienced already? Listen, despite such remarkable gospel fruit, though, and, and this, I, I love how realistic and how real the Bible is. And I love what Luke does for us here. Because he just tells it like it is. He doesn't try to sugarcoat it. He doesn't try to keep it up here with all the highs and no lows. And so, despite such remarkable gospel fruit, Paul's confidence now just seems to evaporate at this point, which is just mind-boggling to me. And yet, at the same time, I can relate to this. In fact, Paul seems now ready to quit and leave the city of Corinth. Can you imagine that? It's like he wants to become John Mark when Mark quit on him in the first missionary journey. And now Paul is struggling to quit and move on and leave the city of Corinth. He's depressed and he's discouraged and his confidence has evaporated. And folks, let me tell you, our missionaries experience that same thing. They're people too, just like us. Given his previous trials before arriving in Corinth, and even more trials in Corinth, maybe Paul was experienced what some call burnout. We'll never know all the reasons for Paul's discouragement and despair here, but it's obvious that even the Apostle Paul needed some assurance. He needed some rejuvenation and encouragement in order to press on 
in the ministry that God had called him to. And that's exactly what our Lord does for him. Look what God tells Paul in a vision. And I've often wished God would do that for me at times. But God doesn't work that way. Remember, Acts is a transitional book from the Gospels when Jesus was here on earth to the church age, the New Testament. And so Acts bridges that gap between the two. And so a lot of what we find in Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive for us even today. And this happens to be one of those, where God speaks to Paul in a dream. And this is the second time he does it. But it's an amazing thing what God does here. Look at it with me in verses 9 through 11. He says, do not be afraid. But Paul, speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Those are some reassuring words that God has for Paul. So look at it with me. It breaks down three ways. Look at God's gentle rebuke of Paul. And basically, that rebuke is this. Paul, don't be afraid. God has been saying this to his people all throughout the Bible, by the way. It's amazing from Genesis to Revelation, God has been telling his people, do not fear. Don't be afraid. And the way God puts this implies that Paul was afraid. He's experiencing fear here in the city of Corinth. And so God says to him, stop being afraid, Paul. We sometimes think of Paul as being immune to fear. But Paul the Apostle, Apostle, the Apostle, the one who stood up after a stony, the one who sang songs in a prison, the one who spoke in front of government officials, yes, that same Paul was in danger of caving into fear at this moment. Paul wasn't the first servant of the Lord to need a general rebuke about not being fearful, and believe me, he wasn't the last to need it either. I would venture to say that every one of us here need that general rebuke. As we go beyond borders, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, Paul, God is saying to you students and to all of us as adults, he's saying, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And then God gives Paul this mandate. And it's the same mandate that we have from God. Speak and do not be silent. In fact, in the face of fear, Paul is told by the Lord to open his mouth. Boldly proclaim Jesus. And this suggests again that Paul was tempted to stop speaking about Jesus. But God says, no, 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 no. Speak and do not keep silent, Paul. And maybe this is why later on Paul would write in Romans 10, 14, and 17, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they going to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes from what? Hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. That's why, no matter how discouraged we may be, we can never give up proclaiming, speaking about Jesus Christ. God's mandate to Paul, folks, is God's mandate to us. Speak. Open your mouth and speak and do not keep silent about your Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah, the Savior. And then we find God's sovereign promises. God tells Paul, I am with you. 
Which is why you don't have to be afraid, and which is why you do not have to be silent, because I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Now this first promise is what Jesus said to his disciples as he sent them out in Matthew 28, 20. For I am with you always, Jesus said. Is that not encouraging? Even to the end of the age. And in some ways, this seems to be so basic, does it not? I mean, think about it. Of course God is with us. Like, Paul doesn't know that. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul, and he has to be reminded that God is with him. Are you serious, Kirk? I mean, think about that. He has to be reminded. Oh, by the way, I'm with you, Paul. And he wrote over half the New Testament. But when God says, I am with you, he means so much more than just I am present. He means I'm here for you. My presence is with you. My power is here for you. My authority is here for you. I am here for you. You see, that's what we're tempted to doubt in times of discouragement. Not that God is not alive and that he's not out there somewhere. We don't tempt, doubt that. What we doubt is, is God with me? Is his power with me? Is he here for me? Is authority? Yes, God is reminding Paul and us of that. The second promise was unique to Paul's situation. When God tells him, no one will attack you to hurt you. Now that's just phenomenal. It's interesting because in no other cities, in, I mean in other cities, Paul was attacked and harmed repeatedly. But here in Corinth, the Lord made a promise of protection that would cover him throughout a certain window of time. It's almost like the Lord knows how much he can handle. And in Paul's case, the Lord says, you won't be attacked and you won't be harmed. And that's exactly what Paul needed to hear to boost his spirits in the city. This promise will be tested in verse 12 when Paul is brought before Galileo, the proconsul of Achaia, in a legal assault by the Jews to try to run him out of town. But the Lord kept his promise to Paul and protected him. And while we can't claim this promise necessarily for ourselves of an attack-free witness, although I wish we could, we can be certain that our lives are in the Lord's hands. Beautiful, right? We can trust God in every situation we encounter. We can trust Him with every person we engage with the gospel. The final promise assured Paul of the Lord's sovereignty in salvation. God tells Paul to keep speaking the gospel because of why. I have many people in the city. Now God is not talking about the ones who have already believed. He's talking about the ones who have yet to believe. And even though Paul doesn't know who they are, the Lord knows who they are. Isn't that great? Man, I wonder if the Lord could say that about this city. Kansas City. I have many people in this city. So keep proclaiming the gospel. Keep engaging people in conversations about Jesus because I have many people in this city that I want to save, that I want to redeem by the blood of Jesus Christ. You don't know who they are, but I do. So proclaim, engage in gospel conversations. Remember, that's why we're here in Kansas City, is to bridge the gap with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so God tells Paul to stick around in Corinth. Don't leave. Because he has many people in this city. And you know what? That's exactly what Paul did. 
Look what it says in verse 11. And he, that is Paul, continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Why did he remain? Because he was now rejuvenated. Paul continued bridging the gap beyond borders until he returned home to Antioch. He stays a year and a half because he is now rejuvenated. I've often wondered what would have happened if Paul had not been encouraged to keep staying, to keep serving. Do you think Paul would have quit? Do you think Paul would have given up on the city of Corinth? Who knows? What we do know is Paul was discouraged, and he needed to be encouraged to bridge the gap. When he arrived in Corinth, he says, I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. But after staying in Corinth, he says later on in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he says, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul learned that firsthand. But he had to be encouraged in that. What a difference encouragement made in Paul's life and what a difference it can make in our missionaries. Remember, missionaries are what? People too. They are people too. And they go through times of discouragement and therefore they need encouragement to keep serving the Lord. And we want them. Our goal is always, we want our missionaries to leave our celebration rejuvenated and refreshed to keep bridging the gap beyond borders where God has called them. We want to send them forward in that manner. And so here's how you, as an individual, as a family, as a couple, even as teenagers, here's how you can encourage our World Outreach missionaries this week. Number one is participate. Participate. Participate in the World Outreach Celebration. Listen, often the simplest way to encourage our missionaries is, you know how? It's just come. Attend. Your presence is an encouragement. And you're like, my presence? What's me? Nobody's going to miss me if I'm not here. Oh, you, you, you are selling yourself way too short. You are selling your presence and the impact that your presence makes on our missionaries way too short. Your presence at our our World Outreach Celebration Conference, let me tell you, it communicates to our missionaries. Without even saying a word, your presence communicates. You want to know what it communicates? I care about you. I care about you as a missionary. In fact, I care about you enough to set aside my schedule to be part of your schedule. I care about you enough to set aside and make room for you in my busy life. And that's true for the majority of us here. But I'm going to carve out some days because I care about you. I care about God's, what God is doing in your life and what God is doing in the field you're going to. And I want to hear about it and I want to support you and I want to encourage you. And I care about that because that is God's heart. That's your heart. And I want that to be my heart. And so I'm going to show up. 
I'm going to be here. I'm going to participate. It communicates you care enough and show up and hear their heart about the people they're called to reach. So the first way that you alone can encourage our missionaries is to participate. Number two is to pray. Pray for the missionaries at Celebrate Unplugged. And yes, we want to pray for them now before they arrive. In fact, at the end of the service here, we're going to do something a little different in our response time. Uh, we're not going to, we're, we'll just have music, nobody's singing, and we're just going to take time and we're going to pray for our missionaries. You see in your, in your insert here, you see their names and their faces. And you, you can do that by yourself. You can, you can huddle up with the person next to you, one or two, and just bring them to the Lord in prayer for a few minutes. But one of the most powerful ways to encourage our missionaries is to pray for them before they leave. And that's what happens at our Celebrate Unplugged time on Sunday night. And let me tell you, folks, it is a beautiful thing, if you've never been a part of it, to come Sunday night, take part in communion with our missionaries, and then huddle around them, physically put your hands on them if you're close enough, and to pray out loud as a church body for them. And many times, it makes such a lasting impression on them that it brings tears of joy to their face. Because they know there's a church here that cares enough to pray for them, not just show up for them, but also to pray. And to send them off in the grace of God through the power of prayer. And then the third way is to partner with the missionaries through faith promise giving here at LifeBridge. Just like the church at Philippi alleviated Paul's financial stress through their giving, we can do the same for our missionaries through our faith promise giving. This is the method by which we partner with our missionaries financially. You're giving. If you've ever wondered, why should I give to Faith Promise Giving? What does it do? What's it go to? One thing it does, it enables us to encourage our missionaries with financial support each month. And let me tell you, there's one of the most powerful encouragements. You ask our missionaries this. It's to know that they can count on those churches who are going to support them each and every month faithfully. That's what your giving does. It allows them not to have to be tent makers. It alleviates the financial stress, and that doesn't mean they don't ever have any. Let me tell you, it seems like they're always going through financial stress, just like many of us. And so our goal is that you will partner with our missionaries through faith promise giving and just give something. It's above and beyond our tithes. Start somewhere if you don't already. And so prepare for that. Pray about that and come prepared to turn in, hand in your faith promise giving card. It's there in your bulletin next Sunday during our worship service. That's what we're asking you to do is to consider this and take part in it. Three ways that you can encourage our missionaries. I hope you will be active in all three because remember, these missionaries that will join us Wednesday, they are what? People too. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And again, as we talked about already, spend just a minute, a two minutes in prayer. And I know we've gone over on our time. I appreciate your patience. But listen, this matters, what we're going to do even now. And so take a few minutes to pray for our missionaries. And then we'll close it out with our offering and we'll be dismissed.